everybody started to speak to each other and the, all the till staff would be speaking to the customers about it and they'd talk about things that happened and the relationships that were going on and there was this kind of the whole supermarket would come alive and then we'd, everyone would go upstairs and get changed we'd come back down and then it was just this weird dead space again so all the the life and the vitality and the the kind of chattiness of people had gone but it's also an amazingly alive place it felt like everybody's alive and looking for stuff all the time so there wasn't a day that you didn't meet somebody on the street and by that night you could be in their house um, drinking vodka and reciting poems hello i'm dave and i'm the guy that puts all this stuff together the conversation you're about to hear is with somebody who's performed at stand-up tragedy we mention a bit about the show in the episode but just to fill you in Stand Up Tragedy is a variety night where people stand up and do tragedy. We try to make people laugh until they cry and cry until they laugh. And we run shows in London normally, but we're taking Stand Up Tragedy up to Edinburgh from the 3rd to the 14th of August. We're going to be performing tragedy daily at the Fiddler's Elbow downstairs, 630 to 7.30 every evening as part of the PBH Free Fringe which is, as it sounds free to come to there's loads of other shows, they're really good and if you're in Edinburgh, why not take a chance on something free because Lord knows there's loads of shows up there that you pay for that you wish you hadn't and we're also going to be podcasting because it's a podcast as well all the way through the Edinburgh Festival bringing people a daily dose of tragedy if you can't make it up to Edinburgh, you can still be a part of the tragedy. And you can find that podcast, like this one, on iTunes, SoundCloud and the Stitcher Smart Radio app. But we need your help to get up to Edinburgh. Stand Up Tragedy have launched an Indiegogo campaign so that we can crowdfund the exorbitant expenses of taking even a free show up to Edinburgh. The money that you donate to that campaign will go to help us pay for our accommodation to help us pay for the transport to help us pay for the printing costs to help us pay the exorbitant really extremely exorbitant amount to get in the official edinburgh fringe program which is a different organization to the free fringe they charge you like 300 quid to get a tiny little listing but you kind of have to be in it or no one will be able to find you so it's catch 22 so that'll help us pay for all of that stuff and the thing is I've put my money into this. It's not like I'm asking you to donate and I'm like, ha ha ha, I'll get other people to fund me and I won't have to suffer at all. I've put my money into this. I've put a a thousand pounds of money that I made from doing the Ministry of Stories podcast for CBeebies which will hopefully be back out later this year. But I've taken that money and instead of putting that into my life, I put it into making art because that's what I want to do. That's the only reason that I try and make money in the first place. So I'm putting in my money, but I really need you guys to help me out and help fund our tragedy. Any amount is really appreciated. You could give us $1, you could give us $100 and I would appreciate that pretty much equally because I think that that paying what you can afford to support people trying to make stuff that's interesting and exciting is worthwhile and I don't have any judgments about how much people can afford but if you want some incentive you should know that when you donate to our crowdfunding campaign you can receive in exchange some amazing perks 
depending on how much you donate you might get some merchandise some t-shirts edinburgh highlight reel vial of tears a signed edinburgh program but then as it goes up there's things like our stand-up tragedy chef will come around your house and cook you a meal you get some amazing pieces of art painted by artists or drawn by artists who make tragic stuff with us one of those artists is yuri who you can hear in an earlier podcast one of the most popular podcasts i've got on getting better acquainted if you donate enough money you could be a guest on this show go to www.standuptragedy.co.uk to find out more about our crowdfunding campaign there's a link there where you can click to it and also to see more about what stand-up tragedy is and what stand-up tragedy is doing we've got another show coming up actually our last london show and that's coming along to that is another way you can help support us it's five pounds entry if you buy in advance or seven pounds on the door and we've got an amazing lineup including josie long the comedian who you may have heard of but also we've got nish kumar we've got frog morris we've got some brilliant music we've got a really top notch lineup come along and experience the tragedy at the dog star on the 4th of july that's a good way of helping to support the show we're going to do an auction during that so that's another way of supporting the show and even if you're not a listener to Stand Up Tragedy this idea doesn't sound that interesting to you if you're a regular listener to Getting Better Acquainted I make this show for free I believe in free art you know me you know me well enough now to know that to know that I would never ask people for money unless I had to to help me achieve something if you like this show if you like getting this free content then please 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 help me by giving that campaign money it's a fair exchange isn't it for these conversations and these documentaries and all of this time that i'm putting into this project it's for me that i do this of course but i also do it for you so let's have an exchange between audience and artist also i should say before this episode starts this was obviously recorded a little while ago so some of the references to news is less topical but hopefully it's just as interesting I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Mark. Hello Mark. Hello. It's, it's strange, I was thinking this when I was coming here because I'm incredibly busy at the moment more busy than than often normally when I'm coming to meet someone who I don't know very well I've at least kind of googled them or like <laughs> looked on social media and tried to work out some topics but this time I'm completely flying blind so uh, that's going to be interesting to see how good I am at getting better acquainted with someone without any help at all the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me I came and did a performance in the first bit of stand-up tragedy yeah I came along and I was a a person's dummy. That's right. I was a ventriloquist dummy uh, in an act with my friend Rebecca. That's right. I've, I've rarely seen you without makeup. Wait, makeup. <laughs> I sort of met you that time mm. before we did mm. the gig when you didn't have makeup yeah. on. Mostly I've sort of seen 
the pictures of you with makeup on and then that night so I was a bit worried I wouldn't recognise you when I came <laughs> I should have come with makeup <laughs> you did a, a kind of cabaret double act yeah. called the Twisted Twins which was which was really cool and I've been trying to get you back on Stand Up Tragedy but the other half of your duo has been going all around the world which sounds exciting it's kind of partly exciting her sister was killed oh, um, right. many years ago <laughs> oh right and she had made a play about it. Oh, that's right. I've seen about that play. And yeah. um, so she's, uh, and it happened in South Africa. So she's gone. Well, it happened in Africa. So she's gone back over and is touring the play around there at the moment. Oh, right. Having a, uh, as far as I can make out from all her blogs, a pretty emotional time. I bet so, if yeah. she's performing, yeah, something so personal in so, yeah. the places that it, it took place. Yeah. Is she taking it up to Edinburgh this year? Not this year. I think she was up. She did was she there last, last year or the year before. Okay. And she kind of did a tour. The back of it, yeah, because yeah. I went, yeah, no, I remember I sort of noted that wave, squirreled that away in my head of like, well, that would fit quite well with Stand Up <laughs> someday. Part of the conceit of that mm. double act yeah. of that performance is that your partner comes on stage and uh talks and then says, Can someone come and help me with a big bag? and then the big bag gets pulled onto the stage, and then brilliantly, in one of my favorite kinds of theatrical moments, the bag's unzipped and you come out of it, you know, a full human being. The night that you guys performed at Stand Up mm. Tragedy, a another performer who I know quite well yeah. called Richard Tyrone Jones, mm-hmm. he was sitting in the front row, and he's got a heart condition. Um, <laughs> and when your partner said, "Hey, can I have a volunteer?" Uh-huh. To, and she sort of singled him out as the person to put it along, and he was like, "Is it heavy?" And she was like, "No, no, no, it's not heavy." I was like, I had one of those kind of horrific <laughs> moments. Of like, is the and he's, he's performing it the next night as well, so that'll be chaos for me on a, on a practical level. But is, is this is this guy going to have a heart? heart attack in my show uh, that would be stand up tragedy yeah it would it would indeed <laughs> literally dying on stage it's not something I want to I want to have happen at my nights but uh, it all worked out yeah. fine but it was a nerve wracking moment yeah <laughs> but it's got it's a night it, I mean the, it's, the whole gag is, is that I can't do anything unless Rebecca is holding the back of my head that's I right I can freeze I can't move I can't talk and uh, like a, a proper ventriloquist dummy yeah, it's, and it's twist, and it literally is twisted. I mean, it's called the Twisted t- Twins, and it's really pleasantly <laughs> uh, twisted and uh, a complicated mm. relationship that you the, the, that I had between the two of you. But you're not always got a white white face no. and, uh, and and being a, a ventriloquist dummy. The second question I mm. ask everyone is, what do you do now? So I um, guess that can start it off, and then we'll get into what you've done uh, before. I'm an actor, director, musician, and I run a lot of workshops in schools as well and devise um, shows with uh, mostly primary school kids. So I part run a theatre company called Teatro Vivo, who create site-specific work around London and... Performing all the time, like any actor, I do whatever anyone pays me money to do. And are you you're managing to make a living from that? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I like so to hear I'm, that. I'm kind of, I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm forty, and I kind of manage to make a living doing drama-related things every day. So, That's ace. Yeah, yeah. That's I good. don't have fame or fortune, or particularly massive amount of money, but I can get by and have a house and yeah. Oh, that's, that's the dream, that's the dream. I've got ten years and then I can hopefully be able to say that myself. Theatre's my background mm. as well. I studied at a university and uh, I write plays and stuff like this. Although I've I've also got my fingers in so many other pies that it's ridiculous. Ho- hopefully they won't all burn and <laughs> scold me. How did you come to theatre? When I was about eight, I decided I wanted to be an actor. I think I'd watched lots of James Cagney films. Before that I wanted to be a, a vet, but I saw All Creatures Great and Small once, where the... A vet had to put his hand up a cow's bum, and I decided I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, and only in my 20s did I realise it was probably an actor yeah, who actually right. did that 
but yeah, when I was eight, I decided, and that was it. All through school, I toured bits. My school were brilliant. They helped me. I went, you know, when everyone had careers interviews, I went and said, I'd like to be an actor. I went, all right, well, you're doing all the right things. And all my friends would spend an hour in trying to figure out what to do. And I went straight to drama school and then to film school. And, so you, and you got in, like, not very many people get in straight from school to film yeah, school. That's pretty yeah. good, yeah. Which I don't know if it's a good thing or not, because you're 18 when you go and... Yeah, I, I moved away from home. I yeah. was wanting to party and do all those kind of things. So I probably didn't get out of it what I could have got, but I had an amazing time. Um, and this done me in good stead, I think. Yeah, I mean, is drama school like the. Because of the fact that they don't take very many people until they've had a bit of life experience, mm. are you sort of like in groups with a lot of different ages then when you go? Yeah, I th- although I th- my. I d- there's kind of a. M- the majority of people are. 18 to 20 when they go um, and there was the f- a few people who were older and I think they found it a lot dif- more difficult because yeah. there's obviously people like me turning up and just wanted to get drunk and party and be silly and they've done a lot more and yeah they don't want to do, do that stuff. anymore yeah, yeah. they want to actually get some work and learning yeah. done yeah. and we were probably just very annoying yeah, no, I, I imagine. I can, I can imagine. So, I mean, I, I yeah, I did theatre, and a few, there were a, f- a couple of mature students, let's say, yeah. which which seems ridiculous now because they're probably you know my age. Now. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sure they they felt similarly. <laughs> <laughs> but weirdly, that most of the, uh, the mature ones, most of them didn't stick at it or stay in the profession. Oh, okay. Whether it was something they'd always wanted to do, and it didn't quite reflect what. Well, by the time they got to the end, be, of yeah. course, whereas. You know, I, you know, not a massive proportion of us stayed at it, but more uh, have kept going from the younger cohort, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you went to drama school? Yeah, in, then, in Scotland. Yeah. Oh, right. Sounds then I went to film school in film. Moscow. Ah, oh, right. After that, which was wow. a random thing. So where did you start off before you went to Edinburgh? Like, uh, not Edinburgh, but where did you go? Well, I was born in Scotland. I was born in Glasgow. I left okay. when I was about eight. Moved around and spent my teenage years in Bishop Stortford. Oh, right. Okay, that's the end of one of the lines I take to go to work. Yeah, well, it's very boring. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, all, it's a nice enough place to grow up, but it's one of those places you want to get out of because there's not much to do. There wasn't even a cinema when I lived there. There was literally nothing to do except for fight on a Friday and Saturday night. Right. Not, not normally what, what future actors end no, up doing when no. they're... <laughs> Yeah, it, was, yeah, it wasn't my kind of play. Well, I know it's unfair. I had a very nice, like, very nice school, very nice friends and upbringing. But then went to Glasgow, stayed up there after drama school. Then went to Moscow for a year and a half. Then came back to Glasgow, stayed up there, um, setting up a few theatre companies before moving down south about 15, 16 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, something, something weird like that. Yeah. yeah. Why did you choose to go to film school? I guess after dr- so you wanted to be an actor. So mm. Sounds like something slightly changed. So I, I uh, wanted to be a, when I. So when I was young, I wanted to be an actor, and then at school we had I had amazing, amazing drama teachers. Right? Yeah. All through my school, I had just they were who were doing extraordinary things outside of school as well, and really inspired us. And I wanted to be a director. By the time I left school, okay, and I remember reading uh, a Peter Brook biography, which is kind of completely wanky thing to do when you're a sixteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old. But uh, in that, in one of the first chapters, he said about how he became a director was he told lots of people he was a director, and then they believed him. Sure. Um, so I figured, oh, I'll go to drama, and that's what I'll do. I'll tell lots of people I'm a director, and I'll go and do it. But there, I, I. 
kind of struggled to get things on. I tried to create lots of stuff early on, but ended up battling against the um, drama school authorities yeah. to try and do stuff because they were like, well, we haven't taught you to direct yet. I'm like, well, let me try it, let me do these things. And it was just a constant, constant battle. And I, rather than rising to that challenge and going, which I should have done, I should have kind of gone, right, no, fuck you, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try and um, make something happen despite you. Yeah. I did what I do a lot, I guess, with authority and just went, oh, okay then. Um, uh, kind of, yeah, had that, had that kind of slight, that enthusiasm for directing knocked out of me at drama school. Um, and part of the course was, was more, well, my course was kind of a mixture of directing and acting. But I think I'd struggled so much to try and get things on and not get it. I didn't have the emotional resources, the wrong word, but the, I don't know, the, maybe I didn't have the right drive to make sure I still did it. Yeah. Uh, so when I left, I kind of left as an actor and ended up uh, doing lots of lighting design as well just because nobody else knew anything about lighting so I kept getting dragged in to do those kind of yeah. things it's like you know. if, if you're willing that's yeah. what you end up doing Absolutely. Yeah. and then randomly about I'd done a couple of tours at the end of John College and then there's a gallery in Glasgow that had a notice board and on the no- they always advertise for actors and whatever and on the notice board was a handwritten card that said do you want to study acting in Moscow call this number wow and I called the number and I uh, went through to Edinburgh to meet this random man in a flat who talked to me about it. And it, I went presuming it was going to be some kind of interview and figure it out. And he's like, well, yeah, no, so when you go, this is what happens. I'm like, well, hang on. Well, uh, and, he was just, and you had to raise a certain amount of money to get there to go and those kind of things. And about a few months later, I landed in Moscow. So you didn't really know anything about this course when you went? Not Well, I did. By the time I By was going... Time. I knew quite a lot about it. It's astonishing. It's the film school that Eisenstein set up. Oh, wow. Tarkovsky's cameraman still taught there. Tarkovsky went there. The Russian film archives are there. It's just an amazing, amazing wow. place. So was it teaching you film acting? Yeah. So it's, well, it's film acting. My main master, so it works in Russia, works, you, have a, you have a master who is a, a working professional who you are under. Okay. And you kind of learn from there. Oh, wait, yeah, yeah. My main master was a very famous theatre actor. I did have a film acting master as well who was... Have you ever seen Stalker? I've only just watched it recently. It was just <laughs> ridiculous. Um, uh, he, was the ma- he was the stalker in that. And, uh, but it was just extraordinary. It was an amazing, amazing place to be. And it, what it did that was different from my training in the UK, with the training in the UK, was a lot about how you get work or how you prepare yourself to deal with all those situations yeah. and, and it's brilliant because you know from I, you know, three years at drama school in Scotland it's fantastic and I if, if I ever get into an acting problem or a directing problem I know something to deal with it yeah. but in Russia it's all about heart and soul and doing it because it makes your life different and you can't do it without it right um, yeah, yeah. so it's nice to go and refine almost refine that passion that I had when I was at school yeah that I'd lost in it, drama school I mean I think that's kind of again. fair as well I think it, it is good and it's bad like you mm. say that our like, education mm. system is, is often geared towards getting people professions if it's not a, geared towards making someone professional mm. it's geared towards teaching them the structure of academic rigour yeah if you like absolutely I mean, I had a similar experience myself when I went to university of, like, went there with all of these ideas and passions and I want to make stuff. I mean, I had a different reaction, I think, 
when coming up against the kind of orthodoxy of my department, mm. which is, which I, I mean, probably I would have preferred your place, actually, and I would have probably have not been such a pushing against the system in, 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 a, in a situation where I was doing what I considered to be kind of more straight theatre, but mm. where I went, it was very much contemporary experimental theatre, which is, I'm sure you know a little bit about, like it's, mm. it's devised and it's, it's... When I looked at the brochure, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to mm. make contemporary experimental theatre. Yeah. But I didn't realise it was a genre. Um, <laughs> and then when I found out it was a genre, I don't really react very well to the idea of kind of working within a, a structure mm. that... I don't have any yeah, choice yeah. over. So, I, I mean, there are things I learned there that I, I have brought into my life, and I, I, I think devised stuff can be amazing. It can be terrible too, a lot of it is very <laughs> yeah. terrible, but there can be amazing stuff mm. from it. But I wanted to make plays, and so I ended up making a theatre company, and that's, I mean, I, I did the, you know, I did the kind of, not exactly fuck you, but a little bit of fuck you, like I. You know, set up my own theatre company, took it to Edinburgh, and then by the third year, then the department were were appreciative of what we were doing. <laughs> but I mean, and I'd had that a little bit in school actually, in the, not in the drama department. Who I had, um, like you, a drama teacher who's brilliantly inspiring. But uh, in the in the music department, it always felt like I was doing their choir stuff, but they wouldn't put my band on. You know, like it was like you know, it doesn't matter what 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 I'm trying to do. They wanna they want they only like me if I'm singing like a whole new world to some pensioners. Not 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 if I'm like trying to uh, sing a punk version of uh, Mickey by Tony Basil. <laughs> so, like, I, and, and I had that experience at university again, ex- exactly the, the same of like wanting to do n- new stuff and wanting guidance, wanting yeah. people to teach me to do it better, but 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 not 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 finding not finding exactly fitting in, and and it does stop you from. Uh, remembering that you love it yeah. like it took me years after finishing university to remember that I loved mm. making theatre yeah. just because I like my help with my heart and myself after uni I just focused on writing and, and other things to, that, that I still remembered that I loved it took me a while to get around to this point so what was Moscow like to live in it was so this was the sort of 95 96 I, I had the best of all worlds I was a western student so I obviously didn't have any money I didn't get any hassle. I was male, which helped as well. So I could go everywhere and explore. I, I learned the alphabet on the plane on the way there. And then we had to learn Russian. We had Russian lessons as well every day to try and understand what was going on. Brilliant. Um, but it's one of those brilliant places where people don't, or didn't then, speak much English. So you, so couldn't, you, go, to, yeah, you yeah. couldn't go to a shop and someone would speak English back to you. You would have to figure out what to do sure. but every time you went onto Red Square it was still like oh my god I'm in Red Square and it, but it was very mafia run at that time and I don't know other times you'd be I guess if in London I met people who said they were part of the mafia and they did these things I'd go yeah yeah whatever yeah. but I met so many people who were kind of apologetic about it that that's the thing they'd been forced into the year after I left the head of my film school's son was killed outside the film school by uh, he'd been paying the wrong mafia or something, he'd got money from one and the next door to us was film studios that had another mafia decided they'd been paying the wrong mafia for a certain amount of time so they closed them down for six months, they couldn't make any films next my, we were in the kind of old Olympic village so, so it was, there are now these rundown places, these big hostels um, so my tower was the film school tower, next to us was the fire um, brigade school tower and because the whole welfare system, the whole state funding system had gone, 
we'd meet some of those the firemen, trainee firemen, who were like, yeah, no, we've become hitmen. And, and normally, if somebody said that to you, you go, yeah, yeah, fine, whatever. But they, it was just, they were saying, oh, no, I've got to feed my family, and it's just but that's what, what have I have to do. And yeah. um, outside, at that time, outside every supermarket, there would be a line of old people selling the things from inside the supermarket, but slightly more expensively, because pensions had gone. The whole, the whole system had been wiped out. And, yeah, as a Westerner, I had a bit more money, so I went and bought my things from them. Yeah. Which makes it sound all very messed up, but it's also an amazingly alive place. It felt like everybody's alive and looking for stuff all the time. So there wasn't a day that you didn't meet somebody on the street and by that night you could be in their house um, drinking vodka and reciting poems. Right, okay. And art is very close to life, maybe because for years that was the one thing that everybody could share that yeah. didn't have anything to do with politics, maybe. Um, but, you know, everybody at primary school learned about Chekhov. And yeah. Or they know, you know, the people at film school, they knew more Dickens and classical English literature than I did because there was this amazingly broad system of of learning that everyone did so it's just a kind of exciting passionate astounding place to be Lisa, it's got a real tradition of amazing art you know Russia I mean I you know you've got all of the, the kind of like Tolstoy and all of the like the great novelists and stuff but I mean I, I, I did film studies at, at at school and uh, we, we studied Russian formalism and, yeah. and, and uh, Eisenstein as you yeah. said and like, montage theory came from there yeah, you know, yeah. pretty much the entire language of, of film as we know it sort of started in Russia which people aren't always aware of mm. because America did you know won the uh, yeah. won the won the Cold War in, in lots of ways although although I guess things are I mean things have massively changed in Russia since you were there I yeah I mean it's really well I've never been back so part of me never wants to go back because I had such an amazing time and yeah. to go and see this uh, yeah, different place. Understand. For a while I kept up with the politics and how it was all changing, but it's got so weird there at the moment. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Seems a, a very yeah. difficult country to be in. I think the thing is that the, the politics isn't changing there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that is the Once you know, a number of years go by and you've still got the same leader and the same problems... Uh, yeah, there's, there's no kind of narrative to follow. No, no. After Moscow, mm. you came back to the UK. You, were, you went up to Glasgow. So I went back to Glasgow, and there I worked with a, sort of a theatre company. We created lots of classical theatre, lots of Shakespeare stuff that toured around all over the place, and weird experimental things. And then the girl I was going out with at the time got a job in Oxford. So we moved south, which was weird. So I had Scotland's an amazing place to create things, because... Yeah. Even for that theatre company, at the time, things have changed now, but after our first show, we could get the head of the Arts Council to come, the Scottish Arts Council to come and meet us and do is things. It, is this because it's a smaller country? Yeah, and you kind of know everybody. So, which has its plus size in that you know everybody. There's, you know, you go to one bar in Glasgow and meet everybody who needs to get acting jobs, and go to one bar in Edinburgh and meet everybody who needs to it's know. Fair to, yeah, it's fair to say that well, Scotland I've seen is Glasgow and Edinburgh in, a, yeah. in, in, in the sense that you mean, in the sense that that's how you get the people to come and see you. There's, I'm yeah. sure there's stuff going on in the, the villages around, but yeah. maybe that often be outreach work like in a weird way. Um, some of it is, so the National Theatre of Scotland does a lot more <coughs> reaching out now, but the, uh, I don't know, there's, you know, there's amazing stuff going on in Aberdeen. And sure, I, do, yeah, I mean, like uh, you know, it's like if, if you said about Wales, Wales is seen as is Cardiff, it would really be. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people, <laughs> I know that, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I so in Scotland, it was 
all right to get work. If, yeah. But then, obviously, if you fell out with lots of people, then it'd be a horrible place to be because everybody knows everything. Yeah. So it has its downside as well. But moving down to England, suddenly I had to start all over again because even all these amazing things I'd done in Scotland, people went, I've never heard of that. Yeah. What's, what's this thing? Um, it didn't happen in London. It didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. And it's weird even still now. Like this, even with the National Theatre of Scotland being set up and being there for so long, there's been maybe five or six shows that have come down. But that's nothing compared to all the work that happens in Scotland. So it's a, there it is... It is a, a division. And there, there's an Arts Council division as well that you can't have work that's funded by... England that goes to a lot of touring in Scotland that can only do a small amount and and the reverse because the money's meant to come from one or the other so it, 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 it is kind of divided culturally it's a very very strange position for Scotland to be and that's why they feel so isolated because nothing quite reaches down and similarly with Wales the National Theatre of Wales is doing amazing things yeah. virtually none of it comes to London yeah, it's 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 funny. People who work in these places mm. come to London, like yourself, yeah. like, like me. Yeah. You, you end up in London and you have to start again. But they, they don't sort of. It should it should that that interaction shouldn't be kind of stealing, taking us all out. Yeah. It should be a kind of dialogue. It should be like responding, like backwards and forwards. Yeah. And also, you know, even maybe the National Theatre should have. It's, you know, they should always have something coming from Wales, something coming from Northern Ireland, something coming from Scotland of all yeah. time. So there's That's something going on, something connecting up. Well, even and, and also, I mean, it's it's easy to say like England when when there's a massive division between North and South. And yeah. I mean, I lived yeah. up north, and you know, there's great stuff going on in the Yorkshire Playhouse yeah. and all, all sorts of places around the north. And and it doesn't necessarily come down here as easily. I mean, I guess they've they've moved the BBC up to Salford. That yeah. in theory, I mean, we'll have more 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 travel. But we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I still don't know if culturally, because uh, yeah, it's a weird thing. Yeah. It just means that they might get more coverage on whatever shows are done up there now on BBC. Just means there's a lot more people travelling yeah. in the, uh, you know, on the railway up to Salford every yeah. year. <laughs> but you know, they want to be too cynical about the BBC uh, in case. <laughs> but then that's uh, coming. So coming to London, I literally had to start doing stuff for free and, and I started off doing lots of school stores because I don't have schools work and doing those kind of things and starting from scratch again and eventually moved to London and kind of I suppose over a longer period built up the same kind of things that I did in Scotland so helping um, establish companies and build those up because I'm not very good at seeing and waiting for calls yeah. so I always think you might as well go and create your own stuff well absolutely I mean, 100%, 100% <laughs> agree with that I mean so what kind of work do you do then what's, what sort of, what's, your, what's your thing one of the first things I found in London was an improvisation scene so I got involved with a company called Flux who are still around doing amazing long form improvised plays okay. so it's not comedy impro no. it's, you'd start getting I don't know, five, six things from an audience and then you would do an hour-long play. And that they have certain structures. It might be that the characters are defined beforehand or that we know that it could be as simple as two characters are going to meet in the first scene, two different characters are going to meet in the second scene and then we'll yeah. figure out what happens from there on. Um, and so that improvisation and devising is kind of...
kind of saying, this will be what I do. So I create some shows that we devise a new show every day yeah. based on the news stories that morning and you meet them in characters in different tents and have one-on-one experiences. Brilliant. Or with Teatro Viva, we use classical texts to create sort of large-scale, partly devised pieces. So, for instance, uh, last year we took over a lot of Deptford and did The Odyssey. So you've got kind of sent round finding. So the audience gets split up. They go and help find Odysseus in different places, in tattoo parlours, in wastelands, in bits of theatres. Three D site specific. Stuff. Yeah, brilliant. Partly because that it's much easier than doing stuff in theatres. There's a show I directed called Supermarket Shakespeare, that was Shakespeare happening in supermarkets, and that's the easiest show I've ever organised. Because rather than speaking to a theatre and trying to negotiate money and time slots and how it all works, I phoned up a supermarket and said, can I do a show? And they went, yes. I went, well, do you want me to come and speak to you about it? And they went, well, if you like. And so I went in and I told them what I was going to do. And they went, all right, that's great. And what they needed to help me with. And they were brilliant. And, and that happened for you know, three years with various supermarkets getting involved and doing it. Oh, that's great. And did you get good audiences for that? Yeah, well, the, the weird thing with it is... So, Obviously, you can't ticket it because it's a free event that happens in a supermarket yeah. while the supermarket's open. So we had people coming from all, well, people coming to film it even from all over the world, and people would come specifically to see it. But also, people who were doing their shop would then stop and come and see it, or see, people would it, have it happening around them and then see bits of it, get involved in some of it. I really like that kind of thing. In fact, the first play I ever produced myself or co-produced with my my friend was a play that I wrote called C and Double, which we did as a bar crawl, basically, <laughs> because we were on a campus university. There were like ten bars <laughs> really near each other, and you could easily de- negotiate with those bars, yeah, yeah. especially because it was a student thing. The audience followed the characters on this bar crawl, and then in the middle they get abducted, and there's a kind of, I guess, naive, but also there's something I like about that naiveness. They get abducted by these weird characters and kind of tortured into understanding that their masculinity is constructed. One of them realises that, you know, really in his heart he wants to be a poet rather than somebody who just takes the piss out of people. And the other one realises he really loves his girlfriend and should have told her he loved her and all this stuff, which is, is a little bit painful to, to say out loud now, but I, I kind of liked the innocence. And also, whilst it had a naive message... The fact that they, they were got like kidnapped and like physically and mentally tortured yeah. uh, kind of takes the edge off the naivety a little bit. But but that was you know as you say, people in those bars they you know we started the night with mm. an audience who had come to see it. Yeah. We ended the night with people who tagged along, and I believe there were people who sort of were out for the night on various drugs who got to, they must have had a very strange experience of the the night uh, c- kind of getting taken up and there were sort of moments when uh, when you know real people in the bar like rugby players got aggressive with our kind of fake ma- masculinity and uh, you know there were sort of standoffs and real tense moments and I really yeah I, I love that when you can actually reach out to people who've got no uh, you wouldn't get in the theatre like suddenly they're connecting with something and, and experiencing it they might not like it still well, we had people we had because we had characters would speak to the audience members in the supermarkets and and every time they got advice, they were getting told how to deal with their relationships, how to do things, with people crying in the aisles with other people helping them out. It was just, it was brilliant. Um, and I was, I think that, I don't know, when, especially when I was a teenager, I was wanting to make theatre that would change the world. Yeah. Um, that part of that is that 
you know, creating theatre can be amazing, but it's who sees it. It's mostly people who are a bit middle class like me. Yeah, um, exactly. Which I go see lots of theatre and I love lots of theatre, and but I mostly sit there and go, oh yes, I agree with that. Yeah. And actually, it's my friends in school don't go to theatre. No, no. no. Oh, no me too. They like, go to art galleries, actually, it's, it's weirdly. Even, like, a mi- minor- mm. theatre-goers are a minority even within the middle classes. Yeah, that's yeah. The, that's yeah. the issue, yeah. It's easy to, to sort of think of theatre as a very dry middle class <laughs> thing. We're in the Royal Festival Hall and there's... <laughs> Uh, I jinxed us by saying it was quiet earlier on and now there's lots of children around just crying and stuff just to explain the background sound but you know like it's easy to think of theatre as a really dry stale Mm. kind of not stale but like a a very rigid art form but people sort of don't know about like you know like Augusto Boal in in, in South America going in and making pieces we're in villages with people who'd actually experienced like conflict and getting them to talk <laughs> about to, to talk about that together i mean there's there's a lot that you can do with people who don't not with or like it's hard to not sound like what what i'm saying is the theatre makers know best yeah. and we should go in and yeah. teach people it's yeah. not that it's that actually through drama mm. You, you, everyone, the makers, everyone that's doing it can learn new stuff yeah. about each other and about the world. Well, there was something, there was in Supermarket Chase, there was this lovely thing that everybody started to speak to each other and the, all the till staff would be speaking to the customers about it and they'd talk about things that happened and the relationships that were going on and there was this kind of, the whole supermarket would come alive and then we'd, everyone would go upstairs and get changed, we'd come back down and then it was just this weird dead space again so all the the life and the vitality and the the kind of chattiness of people had gone yeah and so, so it was an amazing bit of art for that of just getting people to connect in their local environment yes and there's still I know all the people in my supermarkets now I still go in and that was I can't remember how many years ago it was we did Supermarket Shakespeare and I still know all the people who work there and it's great to go into a supermarket and have that connection with all the staff which maybe I've got anyway because I chat to people but there's something about people and of people finding different ways to connect maybe that's what theatre's great at if it's in that public sphere it's yeah. making people talk about things or, or just chat to their next their neighbours well this is a, I mean, this is something I've been because one of the things I'm doing at the moment is I'm working with Spark London who do mm-hmm. true storytelling yeah. And one of you know our tagline is connecting people through stories. I like it as a tagline because it actually is true. It is actually what happens. People get up, they say, tell something about themselves, and then in the breaks or afterwards, people talk about their stories. They they share common experiences or reflect on each other's lives. And I don't think that the people who come to those nights would necessarily think they'd come to a theatre event, even though it's there's a stage, and even though it's in a theatre. It, it feels like you know it's kind of like in the I'm going for the, to this in, this interesting night of storytelling, and nobody would say I'm going to the theatre tonight, yeah. but they are. Yeah. That is uh-huh. one thing that theatre is, oh, absolutely. and uh, it's, it's that's what I'm enjoying about that. Mm. It's, it's it's having having that kind of exp- that those connections mm. between audience and performer because mm. I I don't like the 
I don't like the barrier between the audience yeah, yeah, yeah. and the performer. I don't. I, 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 I like. I write for the proscenium. Now, actually, don't get me wrong. Sometimes, <laughs> but the, the barrier is a problem. I mm. think, and, and it's that barrier that means people don't come to the theatre as well. I mean, yeah. people don't feel it's for them. We are with Teatro Viva, especially. We try and find ways of. Yeah. of it, there's always the characters speak to the audience, but trying to get everyone to feel safe as well because. There are some brilliant site-specific companies that you go and see, and you have to go look and find the work, and it's yeah, it's brilliant, but it's not for everybody. And we try and make sure people feel safe, but give them an experience where they can talk back, give advice, yeah. and the actors all have to be able to improvise and go with what happens as well within a certain structure. And that makes people who don't go to a lot of theatre events more comfortable with it in a weird way. We had a, it, with doing the Odyssey uh, last year, there were lots of kids who were out on roller skates. It must be the new thing again to okay. be on roller skates. Oh, yeah, yeah, they came back like a yeah. year ago or something, yeah. And so they were out all, every night when we were doing the show, they're out. And we had this big reveal where Odysseus came, appeared in the window of the Depth Library and then came down to meet his son. And they all went back to the theatre to go and find the slaughter and destruction um, and the kids got into it and every night they came out to be there for that moment and so then we invited them in to come and see the last scene and then they kept coming back and coming back and you know most I think probably all of them it was their first time coming and seeing any kind of theatre and then we made them part of the show so they started being the winged messengers who would take us so it was just brilliant that that it wasn't something that was planned it wasn't something that we'd gone out oh we must go and find some skater kids it was just like these brilliant kids have got involved and they've chosen to come and watch a bit of theatre because it was happening on their street and we've managed to get them part of it and they've kind of got ownership of a theatre piece it wasn't a direct kind of we're going to make a community and help them join in with theatre it was just it naturally happened we always try and rehearse on location so that people do come the very first show we did was a Romeo and Juliet in a park and kids came and the first few rehearsals they were just coming to shout abuse us all uh, mucking about in the park but then they would come they came to every rehearsal if they heard the rehearsal suddenly hordes of kids on bikes would turn up and then they came and they watched every single show because it was happening in their local park and it's finding ways to welcome that in Things really important in public spaces to, to create theatre. Yeah, that's right. And we were talking actually before we, you know, before we started recording that we're sitting in a public space today because yeah. the Royal Festival Hall is a place where you can come in and bring food and stuff. And it's rare to have a kind of publicly owned space like mm. this where anyone can come in. Even, I mean, even a supermarket is a private space yeah, in a way, absolutely. even though the public use it. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You do a lot of theatre and education work. I now only work in primary and early years. Okay. I think just randomly because I've, I've done a lot of that and as a man, I, think I quite often get asked to go and do those projects. It's what used to be one of the few male people who, males who went into that environment uh, yeah I mean word on that I, yeah. I, my day job is working with the yeah, under yeah. fives and I, I'm, 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 I'm sure I'm valued more for my maleness than any actual skills <laughs> I can play the ukulele and I'm a man yeah. so I'm the poster boy for the, for the services but, yeah. but also I devise shows so the National Theatre run an amazing scheme so I advise shows for kids that will sometimes perform there or write music with children or there's an amazing thing called the London Shakespeare Festival who take a different Shakespeare play every year and they divide it up between various schools around London and they put them all back together so it's primary school kids performing Shakespeare and I do other random workshops in schools from going in and being John Lennon um, I can see how that works I have long hair and a beard Uh, (laughs) so yeah just various I know uh, also 
got, I've got a four-year-old, and ever since I became a dad, I've become uh, a dad expert. Don't quite know why. Uh, there seems to be a lot of funding around for a while to get dads to play more with their kids. Sure, I'm, I do stuff like that at work. Yeah. So we, so I run various dads groups for various theatres. Oh, brilliant! Look at how, yeah, and kind of go in and do amazing. It's hard to it's hard to reach dads though, isn't it? I mean, I've been on conferences about this, yeah. how hard it is to reach dads, whatever you're doing, whether it's theatre or public service schemes to help help kind of get them involved with their children or whatever, you know. One of the problems with all those things, so quite often it is the dads who would bring their kids along to something anyway. Yeah. That will come yeah. along. Because it's there, it's open. Dads, same, same with mums. Yeah. Right? Like anything that you do, that is the first hurdle you've got, is the people you really need to reach yeah. aren't going to come. No. <laughs> but what I think it... What used to be around, I don't know if it's around as much now, but there used to be sort of street social workers who would go, or community workers, who would go and kind of approach young people on the street and speak to them and get them involved in things. And I think that almost needs to happen. You know, the only way you're going to get dads come along is get for someone to be at play parks because I go and speak to them and get them to come and do things but that's another bit of funding that doesn't often happen or it's, there's not enough money for that bit to happen yeah, I mean, that's quite a long a, hard bit you get children's centres have outreach workers who yeah. in theory go out into the community but as their time gets more and more s- yeah, yeah. sort of cut down and stretched they can't go out and do what their job's actually described yeah. to do as much because they, they haven't got the time yeah. and quite often the dads don't get to see the kids until the weekends yeah. and it's, you know, it's trying to catch them on the weekends say look come and do this thing yeah. or come and do this yeah. amazing thing and if they've been working all week it's hard to persuade, persuade them to come out and do something on yeah. the weekends as well and you, I've got some sympathy for that too yeah. Yeah. yeah there's lots of amazing funding for amazing things I'm unsure how you reach people I'm not the, I'm not the expert on that unfortunately I can deliver great things when they come but I yeah how you get them there? That's that's maybe it is doing it in supermarkets. It's, yeah, or, maybe or doing it in those places because everybody comes in at some point. That's a good point, actually. Okay. But it's taking away my work head. Yeah, yeah. but it, it, you know that's part of doing shows or things in those places. It, it's people who wouldn't normally get the availability of it. Absolutely. Which most funding for the arts is about now, rather than actually creating arts. Yeah, and you know there's a there's a this is another argument. There's a yeah there's a there's a problem with that as well. Uh, that's a good thing about that. Yeah. I mean, the first theatre, when I think I, the moment I fell in love with theatre, I think was at primary school with a, with a theatre in education <laughs> performance. I went to school at that time in my life, I was in. Is this, is this the Red Wales? Indian one? Yeah, yes. so you've heard that episode. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Ah, that's right, because you said before we started that you, you, you indicated that you were a listener, so that's really interesting. Yeah, it was a cowboy and, and, and a Native American. Yeah. I had to, to sort of decide. Well, the audience had to decide whether they were going to help the, the Native American to eat some food or not, and I stood up and handed it, handed the food to the, to the Native American, and then it was a kind of like you did a you did the right thing sort of moment, which I guess is a bit cheesy, but but, but worked for yeah. me. And I was a kid, and I didn't see the cheesiness at that time. What is it? What I was thinking because you know, especially in primary schools, kids go with it; they get into the emotion of everything. You know, I I go in, uh, you know, even if I go in as John Lennon, I. I'm going to years five or six, so it's the last two years of primary school. And even after, at the end, I've taken my glasses off, said I'm an actor, and this is how this is what happened on this last day. Even after that, I go. So, so you're really not John Lennon, and they because they've got they've really invested in it, and they get emotionally involved in it. And you know, when somebody's talking about him getting shot, there are they quite often are gasps, even though they already know that they've normally already studied that part yeah. of his life. 
kids are brilliant. They will invest emotionally in something and go with it. Yeah, sometimes it feels like as adults, like as, who creates stuff. Yeah. Like we're, we're always trying to remember how to be how to be like those yeah. kids and, and and imagine without this kind of adult like distance and like analysis. I mean, you don't even need to give kids very much. I don't know. Like I did a theatre education project at uh, university where we went in and tried to kind of take children back into Victorian age. One of the days we did a big world fair and I was sort of dressed up as I was a, I was a war veteran and I didn't need much and they'd seen, they'd, I'd been working with them the whole time and they still completely and utterly were like in that, in that mode of this is a, a war vet, veteran from the Crimean War and that's, you know, it's amazing to see. But then also adults do that as well if you give them the chance. Yeah. You know, if you think of going to see theatre where people are playing different roles... Actually, you don't. So occasionally, you might think, oh, that's a different person. Actually, you just go, oh, I'm going to enjoy that. Or if you go and see a film with a film star you've seen do 20 million things, you accept that they're that yeah, character. That's you, true. Kind of, you do go in, you allow that fancy to work in those times. But you have to get the adult to agree to suspend their disbelief in a way that you don't necessarily always have to with children. Like, like when people come to the theatre, there's a lot of people, who, I know a lot of people who say, I don't like the theatre because it's so, you know, I can see it's constructed. I can see there's people standing on stage whereas uh-huh. a, a film immerses me completely yeah. or whatever. and, and, and like, I often think maybe if you went along to some theatre you'd find that after like 10 minutes you're not thinking about that yeah anymore. absolutely unless it's a really bad bit of theatre yeah, yeah. which is always possible which is very possible <laughs> yeah. but you know not as like it's, it's easy to to you know m- knock bad theatre mm. I can I can I can do that <laughs> a lot but I mean there's a lot of really good theatre oh, there as well, and nobody finds yeah. it. A lot of people don't find it. Anyway. it it's the most, where it works, it is the most amazing, amazing experience. And, and it's weird for me because I didn't get into theatre at all. Until, I mean, it's, maybe I went to see a panto with the c- scouts. <laughs> was it? No, it wasn't even scouts. It must have been with the cubs. I must have seen a panto with the cubs. And then I got into acting because of film it wasn't until I went to secondary school where I suddenly had these teachers that took me to see these amazing things I went oh alright do you, do you work like in film at all I do a bit I act in film and television and I've, I've started making short films again and so I've just, started, I've just directed an improvised short film um, that I'm currently editing yeah yesterday I was dressed as a medieval mint worker in the Tower of London doing a video thing for the, the random horror movie coming out later this year oh excellent I'm still kind of trying to find ways to make it work for me work in the kind of style that I work um, but weirdly it takes more time and money to create film yeah so it's yeah takes time to edit stuff yeah. in a way that you know that's the, the good thing about live performance it's, it's there it's done it's, you know you, you've done it badly or you've done it well but it's that it's happened yeah and you said you're a musician as well yes I play the mandolin it's my main instrument so when I was at drama school if you went to the Irish pubs in Glasgow on a Friday night and played Irish music you got free Guinness and obviously, as, obviously as a student I went I want to do that um, but if I turned up with my guitar um, then there'd already be 14 guitarists and you wouldn't get to play so I started playing mandolin yeah mandolin and various other things it tends to be whatever a show calls for I start to learn that instrument well, mandolin's got a really nice sound yeah oh, it's brilliant. I was in a band for a while playing mandolin and we got to do lots of kind of exciting stuff and it's just it's great having a it's one of the nicest things in life is playing an instrument 
I've never had a, any lessons on the instruments that I play. It has a similar effect if you're with a child or if you have an instrument. People will talk to you. Um, so it has, it's very odd. It makes you safe in a way. Yeah, and people want to kind of approach you and talk to you about what it is, and it kind of opens doors in a way that nothing else does. You could, you could probably actually just wander around with an empty case and you still get to talk to lots of people because people want to That's talk true. to musicians. Every time I'm carrying an instrument, people are asking me what it is, especially because yeah. I play ukulele as well, yeah. so it's an art size case. Yeah. It's one of the few times that I kind of just relax and don't think about anything else, is playing an instrument. And there's something about great pleasure of just being able to sing songs. See, that means that, that, that definitely means you're at a higher standard than me. I wish I could get into a position where I'm not worried about getting the, getting the chords right. I, wanna, I, wanna, I aspire to be, to be a, the kind of musician who can relax when they're playing an instrument. That well, cool. relax at home playing an instrument. Yeah. I don't know about yeah, relaxing yeah, in, in front of people. Playing yeah, that's instruments. right. Although, I don't know, although I'm, I'm terrible for it, if I'm, if I'm practising at home... <laughs> I'm always aware, like, I can't just, I can't stop having an audience. Do you know what I mean? Even when there's no audience there, I'm still aware that, that people, like, I judge myself quite harshly. <laughs> yeah, when we were talking about if there was anything that you'd like to talk about, you said, um, well, you, I wrote it down on the form and then I put the form somewhere. Yeah, I think about it now, it sounds, that's, that's a nonsense. You said, like, listening to this podcast mm. and, like, self-reflection on that. I mean, what did you mean by that? I am a listener to this podcast, uh, although I am, I am only up, I'm up to episode 42. I just listened to Lucy. Oh, wow. Which Lucy is that? The, the From Welsh school. Yeah. Right, okay. um, There's been three Lucy's. Okay, three it's very confusing. Yeah, yeah. And what I, I like about it is that people seem to reflect upon their own lives and existence. Um, it makes me realise that I don't very much. Okay. I, uh, and uh, I kind of contentedly bump along. <laughs> and just whatever happens, happens. I, I'm. I am a very glass half full person, and whatever happens, I can go with that, and that's fine. Um, that's the kind of improvised sort of way of thinking, or devised way of thinking of like experiencing it in the moment. Yeah, but there, but then I always wonder whether I grow and develop as a person if I haven't reflected upon it. And there's something about, and there has been something that's happened from listening to the podcast, though, kind of, because when people reflect upon things, I think about my relation to various things or how I perceive myself or how I think about how I've changed or developed or moved on. Um, that's <laughs> pushed me towards thinking, oh, I should be more self-reflective. I haven't become more self-reflective. Um, but it's... Uh, yeah, started to make me wonder about how, what I should be self-reflective about or, what, or where I should start to think about things. Okay. Which is very unclear because I haven't really formulated Well, I like it though because I mean, obviously it's nice to have a listener but also it's, it's, that's the kind of thing I hope for the show to do to sort of make people consider their own lives and like in a way I'm when I'm talking to the person I'm trying to find like I'm trying to reflect on myself and them and and the similarities and differences and if the if you're doing that when you're listening that's that's brilliant that's exactly what I'm hoping for part of it's the the nature 
one of the things is the nature of what one wants out of life and, and careers and things. I'm 40 as well, so there's lots of that going on. Of attaining the things you want or not, or how you do attain those things, or actually, I'm quite content anyway. Am I trying to reach to create things that I don't need? There's always a need to create and make work. But there's always that nagging feeling in the back, well, why, why don't I get employed here? Why, why haven't is my career kind of built up to that, this point? But at the same time, I suppose I've, if I have reflected on myself, it's that actually mostly all I wanted out of life was to be very happy. That's a good, and to have a, good thing to yeah, go for. And I've kind of always aimed at that, and I think I am fairly well, that sounds pretty self-reflective. I think, you know, you're not always going to discover... If you think about yourself and reflect on it, you're not always going to find negatives or, like, things you need to put right. If, you, if, if what your reflection is is you're doing everything just about right and you're getting what you want, then that's a, that's a great thing to have uh, to worked out. I mean, I know, but then isn't there, there's, that, there's that ridiculous self-doubt going, oh, hang on, am I? Uh, is that yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, that's why. Kind of, why aren't there other things? Why aren't I? What, why isn't there something that drives me to kind of go and do you can't, other you things? Can't get rid of that. I no. think that's like well, maybe, but maybe some people haven't got it. But yeah. I, I don't know very many. I think. I think maybe there's an age thing. Maybe when you so eighty or ninety, you might be able to go. All right. I think I'm all, I'm all right. Now. I, I did what I yeah, yeah. Actually, that's true. I heard um, Mel Brooks in conversation with uh, Mark Maron on his podcast, uh-huh. and Mel Brooks was pretty much like that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm happy. I've achieved. Every, <laughs> but then you know he's Mel Brooks and yeah. he's achieved amazing things. Uh, so yeah, I, I hope I, I thought, when I heard that I thought that would be good. Yeah. I hope to be in a position like him where I can just go. Yeah, everything I happened in my career was great, and uh, my life was great. It's a funny thing. In terms of like asking people, but I didn't. When I started doing this show, I didn't necessarily realise that asking people what they did now would inevitably lend itself to self-reflection. Yeah. Like I, I thought, you know, that, that this is just those are the setup questions, and you know, I thought, you know, people's work. That's not necessarily going to be that interesting. And it turned out that it's one of the more interesting elements of the show. I think. Like sometimes I can ask that question, and then. That'll be the rest of the, the conversation, not always. Yeah. But I think, I mean, you know, it's such a massive part of our identity is what we do, what we, what we choose to do and what we spend most of our time doing. And where you've achieved within that is how you... Well, it's so linked to who people are as well. It's so linked to their personalities, whether they enjoy their job or they don't enjoy their job or whether they chose their job or it happened to them. It kind of influences their personal as well as their kind of work lives. That's a good thing, or interesting thing. I mean, it sounds like you've mostly worked in the arts, really. Yeah. I've, have I done anything outside the arts? <laughs> Even the odd admin job I've done, I've mostly done the arts. Yeah. Yeah. I did some temping for about a year in between sort of arts jobs, but actually, other than that, I have always worked in the arts. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's that's a. I guess people sort of sometimes talk about like career politicians not knowing anything about like the constituencies they're serving yeah, yeah. I mean do you think that there's a similar kind of danger in the arts or, or not um, really I I don't think so because 
you know, I'm a freelancer. I don't know what money's coming in from day to day yeah. or week to week. Although I was working in the arts, I'm, I'm still scrabbling around to try and make yeah, enough money each yeah, month. And, and so. you're working in schools. Yeah. You're working in supermarkets. Yeah. You can't you can't say that you're not connecting with you know everyday people yeah, yeah, no, living their lives. And I, th- I think it's part of the politician thing. Is they, you know, in the House of Commons, is, if, if that's what you're, that you're there most of the time or in constituency office, you, you at least have people contacting you. But yeah, it can be very removed from it. Whereas, well, I don't feel removed. But then there's also this thing that I hate politicians. I don't think politicians are very good. But I've been reading a, a book about Citizen Kane recently. There was a comment in that book about how in Citizen Kane, like a lot of films, we make out that the person who's rich and powerful has no emotional life. They have no love, or that's what they're lacking. Because they've got money and power, they lack love and affection and all those things that we cherish. And that it wasn't true. It's just what we like to tell ourselves that all the powerful people that oh, oh yeah they're powerful but they don't nobody loves them or they don't they don't feel love properly um, and I wonder if there's that thing of politicians we go oh oh they've got all that power and they've chosen to do these things that we don't agree with they don't really know what real life's like yeah and I think you know I'm sure they're you know if they've been to Eton and they you know they've lived in that kind of world we can argue that apart from that and they do, or, or at least they don't understand what effect their lives are having but they I think that it slightly takes lets them go on it yeah, I they're saying oh yeah actually oh yeah they don't really understand that's why they're doing these nasty things maybe they do understand yeah maybe they, well, maybe yeah. I mean it's, that's interesting that you say that there's been a lot of like because George Osborne joined Twitter on the same day as the budget coincidentally there's been a lot of you know people just slagging off George Osborne on Twitter which you know I don't like the guy no but uh but I think it's kind of easy to, 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 to make the kind of jokes that I saw being made. So I started doing this kind of, I guess, piece of writing of like retweeting George Osborne, but obviously it's not what actually he was saying, of having him have this kind of mental breakdown and, and, and come to some realisations. And he start quoting Shakespeare and Karma Chameleon and stuff like this. I kind of enjoyed it. was just a lunch break yesterday. But, I mean, I did it because I just think that it's really easy to just call him names mm. or yeah. say he has no understanding of reality yeah. it's much more interesting to, to to treat him as a human being and think how, how could that human being work <clears throat> like I mean I do think that the politicians don't have any understanding of what a lot of people's lives are like yeah, absolutely. I hope they don't mm. because if they do then then it questions a lot of my assumptions about there aren't any evil people, there's just evil actions. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I hope that, that they, they don't understand what it's like for, for other people and they think that what they're doing is helpful, but actually it's not. I hope that's the case because uh, the alternative is pretty bleak because they aren't doing things that help people. So, yeah. That is the thing. I guess it's the. On some level, they must understand, because there's enough people saying, and there's enough, if they have constituents, there must be enough people coming through their doors saying that this is what effect it has. And they're not stupid. Yeah. You know, a lot of them aren't stupid. Some of them are And absolutely, they might block that out and just concentrate on the things they want to concentrate on. 
but that's their choice they've made and that can be the excuse we give them but well, they weigh it up, maybe. Yeah. So maybe that they consider that X person's needs more important than X person's yeah, needs person for whatever reason the they've got. Who's yeah. close to them? Who wants big monetary help? <laughs> and you know, was it all the cabinet have interests in privatisation of the NHS? Yeah, and those that's right. And they all generally they went to the same, at least the same three schools, but if not the same one. Um, but it, uh, it's kind of it's a bit like the Daily Mail saying. All poor people are scroungers and not understanding anybody who's uh, on income support. They're not trying to find out what they're, they're like. They're just going, oh, that's what they're like. It's, we, it's us doing the same to the, the rich and powerful, going, oh, they're, they're just these <coughs> blinkered, unthinking people, rather than going, thinking of them as human beings almost. No, it's, it's true, and it's hard to think of people as human beings. Mm. Like, but it's important to do so. Yeah. I mean, if you're up, only up to 43, there'll be some episodes where my my assumptions about class and stuff get more and more challenged, and it's kind of one of the journeys I've gone through on this programme is to sort of remember that people are people yeah. at the top as well as at the bottom. But, I mean, also one of the things I, I think it's really important but very hard to do is to sort of remember that, you know, murderers are people and people yeah. who do terrible things are yeah. people and, and try and understand and not make, make it be those people are not really people and yeah. we couldn't be like them. It's kind of the same... It's, 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 it's what Richard Littlejohn did this week. Oh, well, not this week, but recently when talking about the transsexual teacher who's, you know, subsequently killed herself. Um, when he forgot that that was a person, when he was writing newspaper copy that, 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 that didn't take into account that that was a person, that's what we do in response to that almost. Yeah, yeah. When people talk about Richard Littlejohn, they forget that he's a person. Yeah, yeah. Not an, I don't think he's a nice person. No. I don't think that he can defend his position, really, and I think he should probably be feel very guilty. I hope that he feels very guilty. But, you know, people... Uh, in this maelstrom of, of, of I'm right, mm. you're right, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of like people forgetting on either side yeah, yeah. that they're the other side's a person. And and it's not, weird. It, at the very basis, that means that... <laughs> I don't think we'll ever be able to change things because if we, if it is just they're the baddies, we're going to fight against them. Actually, that doesn't seem to work anymore. Well, you can't have conflict re- yeah. resolution yeah. unless the more successful side stands down, yeah. as well as yeah. you know, if if you, for example. It, if we are to have a more feminist society, we need to get men to be on board with feminism. Yeah. If we're going to have a more equal society, then we have to get the rich to be on board with being equal. You yeah. know? If we're going to have a, a society that doesn't discriminate against transsexual people, then we're all going to have to stop being prejudiced against transsexual people, which means that neither side can afford to alienate the other side in a weird way. Although I have a lot of sympathy for people who are are oppressed, mm. who just get angry. Yeah. Because yeah. every day there's stuff yeah. like... So I will be a little bit more lenient to 
for example, because it's in the news in my, and in my mind a lot at the moment, I would be a lot very lenient to a transsexual person who gets really angry yeah. with the amount of yeah. prejudice they have to, yes. to suffer and so are rude to a lot of people as a result of that. Yeah. I have a lot more sympathy with them doing it yes. than, than a well-off journalist who has complete exposure every day in a national newspaper and doesn't really have any hardships as such. I'm sure they do have some, but, you know, this is it, you know. But then there also there still needs to be that... I don't to negate fighting against things because I no, think no. that's yeah it's very I'm in the same to position to it's, it's yeah. really complicated isn't yeah. it like I'm that's my main thing at the moment is empathy and that's the thing I'm sort of always going on about ranting about on this show <laughs> and I guess it's what this show's taught me in, in many ways although I hope I was already on the path before I started but but I mean it is hard to square the idea that we have to be empathetic with each other mm with also the idea that we should still fight for what's right and yeah. try and achieve it. You know, it's a, it's a tr- tough balance to, to get. Wow, and, and there you go. Just at the end of the conversation, we ended up in very different places than I <laughs> expected. It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted yeah, with you, Mark. It's very and weird. I feel I know you very well from the podcast. Yeah, it's, it's probably a strange thing. I probably feel I know you better before than you knew me. Yeah, that's a weird thing. This has definitely been one of the conversations where I've known the least about someone, but at the same time, I kind of knew it was going to be okay because you do theatre. So it's like, you know, if, if, if I didn't know anything about yeah. you and you, you know, you were well a bricklayer or whatever, then then it would have probably been a harder conversation to have. So I knew it'd be safe. But yeah, I, I think I know you better now. Certainly, I know a hell of a lot more about what you do that I didn't know that I probably should have found out in advance. The last question that I ask people, which is always weird when I'm talking to someone who does creative pursuits, is uh, do you have anything to plug? And normally we've talked about most of it already. Uh, I should probably plug Teatro Vivo, uh, w- www.teatrovivo.co.uk. So that's T-E-A-T-R-O-V-I-V-O, because we'll be doing lots of stuff this year at some point, and next year. What does Teatro Vivo mean? It means theatre's alive. Ah, Good. Is that Latin? Uh, it's uh, Portuguese. Portuguese, yes. good. Well, there, you go. there you go, showing I didn't go to a private school. I don't know my Latin for my Portuguese. <laughs> and, and is there anything else that you like, Puggle? Uh, what else should I go? Go and see, uh, at some point this year, there'll be a ridiculous horror film called Frankenstein's Army. Go and see me dying in some horrible, gruesome ways. So you, do you know when that's coming out this year? I don't. I'm, that's the thing. With being an actor, you're always the last person to find out. Well, I will probably schedule you quite away in the distance yeah. from now. So if you uh, if you find out that the release date's coming and I haven't yet put you out, then uh, then drop me a line and I'll, I'll try and slot it in <laughs> as a kind of extra promotion yeah. for that. Although it's crazy, uh, you know, crazy. I've got all these like hundreds of conversations and like I hold people back, and then after a while, people are like. Hello, have you forgotten about me? And I'm like, I feel, then I feel guilty and I move them around and then I feel guilty because I've moved somebody else. <laughs> it's fun and it's always good to talk to new people and fascinating stuff that you do. And I mean, you know, certainly drop me a line on if any of your other projects you think will fit in with Stand Up Tragedy yeah, in the future or if there's stuff going on that Stand Up Tragedy can promote on our Twitter feed I like to do that the last thing I ask people to do is to do something which I'm sure you're quite used to doing which is say goodbye to the audience goodbye audience very nice to have you listening <laughs> goodbye so Mark did email me to let me know that he's got some stuff coming up and that is why you're hearing this episode this week so he's directing and devising with 
a Twitter audience, a show called Storylines, which will be at the Albany in Deptford from the 17th to the 21st of June. If you follow at Ampersand Media, you will be able to collectively devise that piece of theatre. That is pretty awesome, isn't it? So follow Ampersand Media on Twitter and check out Storylines at the Albany in Deptford. Also, Frankenstein's Army, the film that he was talking about, will be at the Edinburgh International Film Festival on the 28th and 29th of June. So you can find out more about that at www.edfilmfest.org.uk forward slash films forward slash 2013 forward slash Frankenstein's hyphen army or you could just Google it. And he's also going to be performing as the White Rabbit in Adventures in Wonderland at the Oxford Story Museum from the 3rd to the 7th of July. Find out more about that on Teatro Vivo's website. And then he's going to be Caliban in After the Tempest in various parks the 13th of July to the 10th of July. And again, check out Teatro Vivo's website for more on that. And then he's doing Adventures in Wonderland again at the Watermill in Newbury from the 12th to the 18th of August. And that's www.watermill.org.uk forward slash adventures underscore in underscore Wonderland or Google it. So check out all the stuff he's doing. Doing loads of stuff. And it all sounds really great. And I'm going to try and get involved with devising that theatre through Twitter. That is right up my street. So thanks very much for listening. Bye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter. At UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.